have a seat. Well, as I said, uh, my goal for this evening is for us to wrestle a little bit with what the, the narrative, the story of the wise man coming from the East uh, teaches us. We live in a day and age where uh, knowledge is at an all-time high. But as I so often tell my, my children, or every once in a while, probably not as often as I should, or they would say too much, uh, knowledge and wisdom are two completely different things. Uh, I, I used to tell them that um, knowledge tells you that uh, a tomato, or a tomato, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, is a fruit, and wisdom teaches you that you don't use tomatoes or tomatoes in uh, fruit salads. That is the difference. The wisdom is lived out practical knowledge. It is, uh, and we live in a day and age where there is a lot of knowledge, all the gadgets, all the technology, all the, the medical uh, uh, development, and, uh, but yet wisdom seems to be something that is, at an, uh, if not at an all-time low, very close to it. We have a lot of knowledge, a lot of technology. It seems like we have very little common sense in the use of it and in the applying of that knowledge. And as we think about the wise man, we think about wisdom, true wisdom. There is a lot of uh, being wise in our society, but there is a lot of being wise for the wrong reasons. Using it to sin, using it to, to evade being caught. But the Bible speaks of a wisdom that seems foolish to the world. The wisdom of God that is foolishness to men. And that is the knowledge that we want to increase in. And that is the wisdom that we want to display. And that is the wisdom that I believe the, the wise men from the East uh, display to us. A wisdom that is eternal. A wisdom that produces fruits for eternal life. And there are at least five truths in this passage that I would want to highlight uh, for us before we come to consider uh, what we can learn from these uh, different uh, Characters, perhaps is not the best word, conveys a sense of fiction, but from the people that are uh, recorded for us in this passage. Five truths in particular about what God wants us to do with the knowledge that is given to us in Scripture. Five truths about worship, which is the ultimate design of, of creation and of mankind. We are created to sing, to proclaim, to honor, and to worship the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God. That is the purpose that we are all created. So worship should be at the, pri uh, the primary focus of our lives. And there are five truths here about worship. What we came to do this evening, what we, if we're believers who go to uh, and uh, attend uh, other churches, uh, what we do when we go to the services is to worship. It is the primary goal of our lives. 
And this passage teaches us uh, quite a bit about worship. Number one, it teaches us that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and that he should be worshipped. Number two, it teaches us that Jesus is to be worshipped, not just by Jews, but by all the nations of the world, as represented by these wise men who came from the East. Number three, it teaches us that God uh, controls and wields the creation and the universe for the purpose of his son being worshipped, being known and worshipped. Number four, that Jesus is troubling uh, to people who do not want to worship and, uh, and brings opposition uh, to those who do worship him. And number five, and lastly, that worshipping Jesus means to joyfully, with exceedingly great joy, as the text tells us, uh, to joyfully ascribe to him authority, dignity, by or with sacrificial gifts. It's five points. I won't take much uh, or long with each point. I want to keep it short uh, this evening and I want to keep it direct. But first of all, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of Jews and he should be worshipped. If you would turn to, again to our text, in, in verse 2 you read this, that where... Um, when the wise man came, after Jesus was born, when the wise man uh, came to, to Jerusalem, they were asking, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. This is their desire. It, 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 they wanted to come into the presence of this child who was born and they wanted to worship him. They wanted to know who is this who is going to be the king of the Jews. I don't know about you, but there is something even in these two verses that conveys the, the, the specialness, the peculiarity of this child born. Um, there is something implied here in the action that they have that conveys something of the, of the uniqueness of this child. You don't usually go and set out on finding uh, uh, a child just because of something that he will do in the future. Or in this nation and today, uh, there are probably a good handful, if not more, a dozen, or maybe not a dozen, but there are a good handful of people, children, that are uh, children right now, but that will grow up to be uh, prime ministers. No one is setting out trying to find who these children are so that they may honor them. In fact, we, there are, I'm trying to think about the, the, the line of succession, there are, uh, one is an adult, there is a child uh, in the line of succession to the throne uh, that is going to be king one day. But for the most part, he doesn't get any, any kind of, uh, worship, or especially there is some degree of honor given, uh, but but there is not this degree of trying to find uh, and and worship him, to set out to find and to honor, to discover who he is. And verse four makes clear that what the the wise men were really speaking of was a, a special, peculiar child. It says that uh, in, in verse 4, that when they had gathered all the chief priests and scribes, the people together, 
he inquired, this is uh, Herod, he inquired them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod understood that what these wise men, they are also called Magi, uh, what these wise men from the East were looking for was not just simply the next in line who would succeed after Herod, a, a, a regular king, he understood immediately by the way that, the, he, that they uh, spoke of him that he, they were looking not for just one more in the line of succession, but by the, they were looking for the king of kings, the king that will uh, end all kings, the, the Messiah, the Christ uh, that is to be born. He understood this. You know, Herod was a king of the Jews. I think for at this moment, it's towards the end of his reign. It was around 40 years that he had been king. And for the most part, uh, historical record says that he was a, a fairly successful, ingenious uh, a king. That he was very good in some practical things about governing a nation. There are other things in the, in the records that, that are not as uh, bright and as good. And he was known as the king of the Jews. He had been appointed by the Senate in Rome, by the, the Roman occupier to this position. But he was not a Messiah. No one considered him to be the Christ who would overcome all the other rule who would bring in the usher in the new age, the end of history. I don't know how the wise man came to have this information. We're not told. I don't know how they, they understood this, but it was clear that they knew it. And Herod understood clearly what the implication of their search uh, meant he was not just a mere ordinary uh, human successor to 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 Herod. It was much more than that. It was the Messiah that was long awaited, who would come. They were searching for the final king. But unlike in another uh, birth narrative, unlike Anna and Simeon, who were looking for, for the Messiah, awaiting for the Messiah, Herod's reaction to the, to the news breaking that, in fact, he was already uh, born in Bethlehem, was completely the opposite. He was not looking for him in that sense. He, was, he, he didn't want to, to, to know of him. In fact, he didn't even know simple scripture that was common knowledge at the time of where uh, the Messiah was to be born. So he asks the scribes, where, where is this place? Where, where, where do the, the scriptures say that, that the Messiah is to be born? And they quote to him from Micah that we read earlier, saying that it is in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the land of Judah, the least uh, the, the, the one that is not the least among the, the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler. And they quote Micah to him. It is sad. Instead of asking who, he's asking where. And we know that his motivation is not the best. Had he asked who from, uh, from the, the scribes and the chief priests, he would have probably received the, the rest of the prophecy of Micah. Oh, who he is? He is the one who brings 
uh, whose goings are from long ago. He is the one whose comings are from the days of eternity. He is the one who will arise and shepherd the flock of Israel in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the Lord his God. He is the one, as John in his gospel says, he he is the one who was in the beginning uh, with God and was God. But alas, he didn't ask this. But the first point is this. That the truth that Jesus is the Messiah commands us, propels us to worship him. And it leads us to the second truth, that Jesus is to be worshipped, not just by Jews, not just by the the people uh, of, of God in the Old Testament, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, but by all the nations of the world. These wise men, they were from the East Traditionally, it has been said that they were uh, from Babylon, that perhaps in the days of Daniel, Sadrach, Mezach, and Abednego, they had, uh, the, the knowledge of the prophecies has been uh, um, sipping through to the, to the prophetic knowledge within the, the religious uh, uh, Babylonian uh, nation, and that there was this kind of background expectation. How oh, you remember Daniel? And when the Jews were here, they spoke about this king who was to come, who would rule over all the nations. This perhaps was there. And notice that Matthew here, these are some of those distinctions between Matthew and Luke that point us and show us quite a bit about the purpose of each uh, author, notice that Matthew goes straight from the Annunciation and this conversation that existed between the angel and and uh, Joseph to the to the birth of of Jesus directly to these wise men coming. He doesn't spend any time um, considering. Uh, the empty, uh, the, the no room for him in, in Bethlehem. He doesn't speak about shepherds in the fields. You know, he just goes straight to this as if Matthew says, this is the point I want to emphasize to you. This is the point that I want you to see uh, the people receiving this, this gospel. The point is that as Jesus is born, immediately Gentile, unclean uh, uh, foreigners, they are coming to worship the Messiah. The, math, the Gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus at the beginning, right at the start, as one who would be the ruler over, over the nations. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. Do you know how Matthew ends? The Gospel of Matthew. All authority has been given to me on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It begins... With, with the nations coming to Jesus, and it ends with Jesus receiving all authority over the, the nations. This open door from beginning to end in the Gospel of, of Matthew, calling us Gentiles, calling the, those who were not uh, of the people to be uh, a part of this great kingdom that is coming. 
one of the many repeated prophecies throughout the Old Testament. You find it in, in the prophetic books, yes, and you find it in the Psalms, and you find it even in the, in the Pentateuch. There is this promise, this expectation that this Messiah, this seed of Abraham, this, this uh, seed of the woman, this, this, this long-expected one who was to come would be a ruler, not only over a, a small nation in the Middle East, not only over the, 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 uh, an ethnic nation, but he would be the ruler of all the nations. We read at the beginning of the service, didn't we, from, from Isaiah 60, nations will come, Isaiah says, the nations will come to your light and they will, and they will be uh, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So Matthew is bringing this right at the start so that we, there would be no doubts that Christ is to be worshipped by Gentiles as showcased by the, the wise men. Number three, we see that the purpose of worshipping is such that God wills and, and shapes and, and controls creation for the design of of making his son known and worshipped. Number three, that is the great goal of God, that, God, that uh, his son would be known and worshipped, that his son would be worshipped by all. It is a baffling uh, account, isn't it? This story about a star shining in, 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 and that star being able to, to direct uh, the Magi from the east to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, about six miles. And if you're someone who likes to go on rabbit, uh, uh, rabbit holes and, and being sidetracked, uh, there are numerous uh, people who do. Uh, there are numerous uh, efforts and, uh, and, and attempts to explain well, how this happens, how, the, how may, might it have been that a star all those light years away from Earth would be able to pinpoint so exactly. Now, I'm generalizing here, but people who usually spend time considering this, they, uh, and, and delving with things like, where, how is it that the star was able to do this? They are, most of the time, uh, pursuing what they call red herrings, uh, what, uh, things that don't really matter spending their, their mental ability considering the, the things that are not there to be, to be understood. There are usually the same people who go, well, well, how was it that God divided the Red Sea? What kind of natural phenomenon or supernatural phenomenon were happening? How is it that a great fish uh, was able to swallow Jonah and Jonah survive uh, there? How is it that manna fell from heaven? What kind of uh, organic constitution did the manna have? They spend time with this. With the marginal. With the non-important. And most of the time, and again, I, I think I'm generalizing, but, but it is true uh, nonetheless. By generalizing these things, we lose track of what is primary and what is central, which is the gospel 
most of the time when people do the, things like this, they, they never spend equal or, or, or even similar amounts of time considering the gloriousness of the gospel, the ugliness of sin, the holiness and justice of God, the righteousness uh, of, of God, the helplessness of man, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. They always want to go down some sidetrack, some rabbit hole, because they read some new book, they read some new article on, the, on, a, on some blog, but they lose track of what is plain concerning this matter. The plainness concerning this matter is not how the star was there. Which kind of star? Was it a supernova? Was it, was it, was it a, something different that was perceived to be a star? That's not what the, the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that somehow, some, in some way, God supernaturally, miraculously used his power to wield and to shape the, the, the creation in order that his son would be known and worshipped. That is what God was doing there. He exerts global, even perhaps universal in this kind, power to propel us to see, to know, and to worship his son. This is God's design. He did it then. He still does it now. His aim is that the nations, all the nations, would worship his son. And he does so even today. He still looks for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth, as John 4, 23 says. Come and see. Come and taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And number four, we find this rather troubling account of the people, in this case, being troubled as well, who, because they didn't want to worship him. We'll, we'll, I'll speak a little bit more about this at the end. But you find that Herod, he does not want to worship him. The, the chief priests and the scribes, they are at most, if you were to call them something, if you were to consider uh, uh, something, they are blasé about it. I don't know about you, but if I was a Jew living in the, in the first, I would like to think, probably I'm being too charitable and generous with myself, but I would like to think that upon hearing that there is a possibility that Christ the Messiah was, was born, I would like to think that I would be joining the, the, the wise men in the pursuit. Well, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see what we find. But on the one side you have Herod opposing doesn't want anything to do with it. On the other side, you have the scribes, the chief priests, the, the whole of Jerusalem, just going, ah, okay, that's good. I'll, uh, back to normal life we go, not wanting to worship the true God, not wanting to uh, be bothered. One of them is threatened by it. He wants to retain the power to, to keep on holding to, to the power that he has. He is really afraid of losing it. And he actually, as we'll see in a, in a couple of weeks when we come to, to the next section, he actively schemes uh, and even in this section lies 
in order to 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 commit murder. He eventually goes on to commit mass murder just to get rid of this child. But there is the other side, not deeply threatened, just indifferent. And basically, that is the reaction that you see in this world of those who don't want to worship uh, uh, God, who, of those who, who, who do not worship God. On the one side, you have the fierce, militant atheists. Uh, earlier on, we, I won't name names. Uh, earlier on, we were talking about a, a particularly famous one in, in the UK. Um, you have those who, that... Ha- Having the chance they would do away with religion and with Christianity uh, in a heartbeat. They are opposed, they are militant, they are, they are anti and enemies. And on the other side, you have the great, I would say, vast majority, just sheer indifference. Don't bother me with that. I don't want to hear about it. Let me live my life. I don't want to think about the consequences. I don't want to consider what, what comes after. I don't want to know. Indifference and hostility. And the question I have for you, are you you in one of those groups? Are you one of those who who either is deeply, militantly opposed to Christ and to to his kingdom, or just indifferent? You don't really care. Are you in one of those groups? I pray that it would be this holiday season that you would reconsider, that you would ponder, what it means to worship him. And let me close with the fifth truth. That worshiping Jesus is uh, to joyfully give him honor and dignity with sacrificial gifts. Let me try and unpack that. There are, first of all, This idea of ascribing to him the authority that belongs to him. That's what the wise man did. Where is he who is the king of the Jews? Who has been born king of the Jews? There is secondly this uh, worshipping dignity and and honoring in the the actions of the, the wise man. We read in verse 11. When they found him, when they saw him. Uh, they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him uh, just before that. They fell down and they worshipped him. Bowing down and worshipping. The, the attitude in worship is here is a, a, a laying low and saying, you're greater, you're higher than me. You're, 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 you have greater dignity than me. I'm lowly in comparison to you. And that's what they did. You, we also see something of the joy that comes with it. That sometimes is a sort of paradoxical. That sometimes seems to be... But notice the emphasis here. In verse 10, when they saw the star again, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. I don't know why. Well, I, I believe I know why. Matthew said this, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit. Think about it. If this was just a mere account of what was happening, he could have, they, they rejoiced when they saw the star. But it's this fourfold way of saying that they 
really, really, really rejoiced at the opportunity of worshiping him. With exceeding great joy, they rejoiced. Not just joy, not just great joy, but they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. As they were almost there. And I think that is at the heart of what true worship is. It has the heart. It's not just a, a ticking of the box. Kind of like my fellow countrymen in Portugal, the Roman Catholics, uh, Catholics do, where you, you go to Mass, you need to take the boxes, you need to, you need to do these things because that's what we, uh, what we do. True worship, true belief, true honoring God needs to have joy, needs to flow from a joyful heart. If you don't have any joy in the worship of God, I would say that you have no true worship of God in you. Just read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. You, you know, the worshiping of God is this intensely heart and soul endeavor that is filled from beginning to end with joy. But finally, it is with sacrificial gifts. And I must say here, these gifts, they're, they're not bribes. They're not um, things that we're lacking and that we give to God. There are not things that are lacking in God that we need to complete or, or, or meet that need. God is not served by human hands. He is infinite. He has everything that he needs. He commands the whole universe. And he does not certainly take bribes to earn our favor as Deuteronomy actually says that God takes no bribe. The gifts here are intensifiers, are, are demonstrations uh, very much in the way that fasting is. When we fast, we're not trying to twist God's arm into, uh, into answering our prayer positively. When we are giving a gift, when we are giving of ourselves primarily, what we are saying is the joy that I want, what I desire for, uh, for me is to worship and to bring joy to you. I, there is no hope of, uh, in the things of this world. There is no hope for me in, the, in material things. But my hope, my desire, my joy is in you and in pleasing you by giving you not what you need, but, but by giving you what I might enjoy to the same level that I enjoy you, Lord. It is our way of saying, whether we fast or we give, uh, whether financially or our time, sometimes for us, some of us, our time is much more valuable than our money or our gift of giving of ourselves. When we give, what we are saying is, you are my treasure. You are the one that I want. Not these things. Who have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is none besides you. That is the attitude of the heart. And that is what, means, what it means to worship God with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the question for us, as, as I draw to a close, 
is really what what will we do? What who in which category of these people do we fit? Are we like Herod? I suppose there is none no Herod here in our midst. And I suppose we don't know many Herod like characters, people in our life. But are we just like the 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 Jerusalem inhabitants, the, the chief priests and the scribes, just indifferent, just not really wanting to be bothered about it, knowing something of the truth but not acting on it, having some knowledge, having heard who Christ is, but not really wanting to display the wisdom of using it for its designed purpose. You know, because people... People who, who, who have knowledge so often are tempted to just rest on that knowledge. It is never enough to know truth. It is never enough to know something if you don't put it into practice. If we truly know, if we truly know Jesus, we will display the wisdom of worshiping him. And that's what the Magi, or the wise men, show us. They knew that the king of Jesus was, had been born, and they didn't stop until if they found him. They came into his presence, and they worshipped him with their hearts. They ascribed to him dignity and authority, and they gave of their gifts to him. They abandoned everything. I'm sure they had other things to do, family to attend to. I'm sure they had other things in their lives. But they went on this trip that took months out of their lives. This is a time where there are no planes and no, no highway systems. It would at least take an, uh, a good handful of week, weeks, if not months, to have gone on this trip. But they embarked on it. It was a perilous journey, by the way. Well, we don't know if they were three. Uh, traditionally, legend has it that they were three kings. Uh, what is the name? Balthazar, Belshior, and some, uh, some other. We don't know how many there were, but you're going through alien uh, foreign lands. You're going through places where, where there are robbers. You're going through places where there are uh, 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 many perils. But yet they weren't. And they brought their most expensive gifts they could find and when they arrived they worshipped and they gave them gave Christ their gifts they knew very little they had very little information but on the little that they had they acted upon it and God honored them with it it's not that their gifts it's not that their actions uh, twisted God's arm into blessing them, into giving them something. Some, some other, I don't go, usually, I don't like to call them uh, Christian churches, but there is this idea in, in, in some circles that you can wrestle God or you can negotiate with God. If you give one pound, God will give you two pounds. That's not how it works. That's not how it it. it it functions. King David, the great, 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 great grandfather of, of the Lord Jesus, he once said that I will not give to God what, that which costs me nothing. I will give 
that which causes me joy. And that's what we do. When we come to give to Christ, and primarily we're talking about ourselves, which involves our time, which involves our money, which involves the gifts that we have, which involves quite a bit of everything that surrounds us, but primarily it is ourselves that we give of. We do it because we delight in it, because we have joy in in pleasing God with it. In a way, when we give to Jesus ourselves, we're giving the purest of gifts. Jesus does not return the gifts in kind. He is not forced to give a uh, a pound for every pound we give. But he gives himself to us as we give him ourselves to him. And that's what the wise men found. That as they gave of their lives, their few months there to him, that Christ gives them his life. And it's not just a few months. It is eternal life. It is full joy in his presence and may it be for all of us that we would give the gift of ourselves to the Lord fully that we would delight in giving to the Lord who delights uh, in receiving and that we would receive from him the fullness that he alone can give, that we would offer sacrifices ourselves as a living sacrifice to our God this holiday season, and that we would worship him, not just with words, although they are important, and we will sing it once again. Although they are very important, the words that come out of our mouths, that we would worship him with our thoughts, with our hearts, and with our actions. Because he was rich, He didn't need us. That's what our final hymn says. He was rich beyond all splendor. He didn't have need or want of anything, but he surrendered all. He made himself of no reputation so that we would have the richness and the fullness that he he earned.